0: Thank you. Go ahead. I want to make sure it's So Bonte and I, Bonte, Suhita Dharma, and I have, by my math, which isn't the greatest, uh, known each other for 26 years. So I introduced him, and with some trepidation, I never know what's going to come out of his mouth. I will ask him to introduce me. Bonte.
1: Okay. Um,
2: We've been knowing, uh Mushima and I have been knowing each other for, like she said, uh, 26 years. And I remember very vividly when we first met. Uh, I was at the uh, International Buddhist Meditation Center. That was the one I was talking about, my teacher. And she and another uh, American Korean monk, very tall very tall, and I saw him first, and then I looked again, and then I saw, I said, who in
1: the world is that,
2: and that's how we first met, both of them had really beautifully shaved heads, and the sun was shining, so their heads looked like diamonds, and it was when we first met, and right away. We became friends and we have been friends ever since. She's a very good teacher. She's very sincere in her heart about many different things. Uh, and she's also the information giver for me since she spends a lot of time in the, in the Bay Area more than I do these days. And I have learned and I'm learning a lot from her. With a lot of the new things that are, is coming up and going, and what's happening with the uh, meditation center in Oakland, et cetera, et cetera, and all these things. Uh, she's a very vivid worker for uh, diversity, and she's very sincere about that. And um, I don't want to talk too long because she her, give her a talk, and she's also. Uh, Uh, really a member of our group as well, which is diverse, and um, pretty soon uh, she's going to be fully operational uh, as a Dhamma teacher. uh, Very soon. I was hoping we could do it while we was here today, but we are waiting until later and we will come to the East Bay. So I'd like to introduce to you my friend uh, Mushim. You that. <laughs> thank you. You're
0: welcome. Thank you, thank you. So if you feel comfortable doing so, please place your hands, palms together, and repeat after me. May I be a protector.
1: May I be a protector.
0: To those without protection.
1: To those without protection
0: a leader for those who journey
1: a leader for those who journey and a boat and a boat
0: a bridge a bridge a passage a passage for those desiring the further shore
1: for those desiring the further shore
0: may the pain of every living creature
1: <coughs> may the pain of every living creature
0: be completely cleared away
1: be completely cleared away
0: So that's part of a famous text called Shantideva's Prayer, which some of you know. And Shantideva was a famous Indian Buddhist master uh, who composed the Buddhist classic Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. It's one of my favorite texts. I recite it often, and uh, it never ceases to, to nourish me in my practice. Okay, Um, I want to start out this Dharma talk by I introduced you to the Hawaiian word, the indigenous Hawaiian word, kokua, yesterday, and I learned this from my cousin, the Reverend Jiko Mary Nakade, who is a priest of her childhood temple on the Big Island of Hawaii, Daifukuji Soto Zen Mission Temple. And so I get her an e-newsletter, and uh, they always thank their volunteers for their kokua. Kokua means pitching in to help as necessary. And this is so much a part of our practice. It's not specifically Buddhist, of course. It's human, and it's um, about living together in harmony and in joy. So uh, we may have, <clears throat> and we do have, our own functions, our own jobs because that that helps to cover all our bases and if we happen to notice in a mindful and respectful way that someone needs a little help or um that there, there's something that needs to be be done and we know that we can we can just do it in a way that's not a big deal then we do it we just just flow in fill the function flow out and that's kokua pitching in to help as needed So for a retreat like this to happen successfully, so much is needed that goes on behind the scenes. Those of you who have participated in organizing, it doesn't even need to be a a retreat, but any event, understand this. So I want to express gratitude to everyone supporting this retreat, particularly the staff, Carl, the ranch foreman, Surya, who's our cook for this retreat. They do uh, rotate through. Lee uh, Locke, the executive director of Viacitos, uh, she and I actually spend the intervening year periodically touching base with one another, planning, discussing uh, what's going on at Viacitos, what's going on with the People of Color retreat, because this is a community which does tend to continue to come back and form interrelationships in the year in between, and uh, and as it gets closer to the retreat, Lee and I are very closely in touch. Also, uh, Jack, the assistant, Foreman Joel, the volunteer for Vallecitos, and for those of you who are alums, uh, it's very possible, if you like, to be out here to volunteer, and then you get to live out here and have Vallecitos more to yourself, do some interesting and enjoyable work, and, and <clears throat> just enjoy Viacitos in that way, from a different perspective. And also on the retreat staff, uh, Mahogany, who is here for the first time. We also could not do this without all of you, the yogis, and so I want to express gratitude to each and every one of you for your contributions and your practice, and of course to uh, Bhante Suhita Dharma, my co-leader of this retreat. The title of this talk today is called Great Vow Practice. And this is something I'm very keen on. Uh, So it's called Great Vow Practice. Some of you have taken the bodhisattva vows. Others may know of them. Others may not. Bhante mentioned yesterday in his Dharma talk that uh, because the vows he's taken are bodhisattva vows, that um, that he will continue to return and to help any being that is suffering uh, as as much as he can for as long as he can, and because in the Buddhist vision, however we may take it, uh, we are people of science as well as of spirit. Uh, that it's considered, and I think psychologically, this has a has a very good function. It's considered in Buddhist theory that we we do return and can return life after life after life, that life continues. And so for those of us, including myself, who have taken the bodhisattva vows, um, it's considered that even if we should work so hard and be so fortunate as to attain enlightenment and thus theoretically to go on to Nibbana or Nirvana, whatever that may be, Uh, and it's considered to be that would be getting off the wheel of samsara, the samsaric, uh, the cycle of suffering, birth and death, that even if that should happen, that we would still continue to return because we understand through our practice and through just kind of looking around that life, all of life is interconnected. So as long as there is even one suffering being left, Bodhisattva still has some work to do.
3: So I'll start
0: by reading this text, which comes from my original Dharma lineage, which is uh, Korean Zen Buddhism. A lot of people, Zen is a Japanese word, and a lot of people are more familiar with Zen as it comes from Japan, or at least more familiar with the idea, because in our culture it's often... So sadly, um, has degenerated to an idea of interior decoration. You know, like, whoa! You know, I really like that shoji screen and that bench. It's so simple. It's really Zen. And I, just inside myself, there's this giant, ouch! Uh, because, I mean, it's, it's, it's a sect of Buddhism which has a long history in China, Korea, Japan, uh, Vietnam and uh and uh, and is is very well known for its culture which has been specific to each country so korean zen has its own flavor it's considered to be very earthy as is the korean culture and quite vigorous and this is from a korean zen master uh named master naong i'm never quite sure of the pronunciation of that i have to check with my friend in korea because it i've seen it in Romanized English, but I think it's probably Naong. So this is Master Naong's Resolutions. I resolve that each time in every place I am born, I will remain in prajna and never retreat. So this contains a lot of Buddhist terminology. Don't worry about it. Prajna, ultimate wisdom. I resolve that each time in every place I am born, I will remain in prajna and never retreat. Obtaining a will as fearless as that of Shakyamuni Buddha. it's a historical Buddha. Obtaining the fruit of enlightenment as vast as that of Virochana Buddha. Obtaining wisdom as great as that of Bodhisattva Manjushri. Obtaining deeds as boundless as those of Bodhisattva Samantabhadra. Obtaining bodies as innumerable as those of Bodhisattva Kshitigarbha Obtaining 32 transformations, as did Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara. Nowhere will I not manifest myself in all the ten directions. So remember from the Metta meditation last night, ten directions? And far and wide help all beings enter nirvana. Those who hear my name will be freed from the three evil paths. Those who seek my appearance will be delivered from passions. I will thus teach and instruct for countless Kalpas, Kalpa is a really long period of time, till there be neither Buddhas nor beings in the end. I desire that Devas, Nagas, and all the other protectors of the law of Buddha protect and do not forsake me. Let there be no difficulties where there are difficulties, so I may accomplish my great resolutions. May these acts of merit thus performed now reach out to all, that we and other sentient beings may all attain Buddhahood. So this this poem, this prayer, this text points to the path of the Bodhisattva and the vow of the Bodhisattva. At East Bay Meditation Center in Oakland, where I'm a core teacher, uh, we're a meditation center right in downtown Oakland, and we were founded to, um, to address issues of diversity, inclusiveness, and social justice. So we're a very experimental kind of center and uh, have been quite successful in the five-and-a-half years because we serve populations of people who sincerely seek the Dharma and other wisdom teachings and who might not feel real comfortable in other sanghas or spiritual communities. So we're kind of a refuge sangha. We're a refuge community. And at East Bay Meditation Center this year, I'm uh, the guiding teacher of a new year-long program called Practice in Action. And just as Bonte said about himself, um, the way that I was trained, my personality, the way that I see things, the expression of my practice is always going to be at the ground zero level of everyday life, of uh, our work, our families, our work for social justice, uh, whatever it is that we may be doing. You know, if we go through a period of illness, That becomes the ground for our our practice. Uh, Our caretaking, whatever it is that that we may be doing, including having fun, being together joyously in community, enjoying our solitude, working creatively, that's where um, my emphasis on Dharma practice is, not just the formal practice of sitting meditation. And in the Practice in Action program, I've asked each of the 20 plus students to formulate a vow and to consider what it is that is their commitment, that is the umbrella principle, that is the heart, that is the core, that is their motivation for spiritual progress and development. I would encourage each of you to do so if you have not, and to be very clear about your vow because once we are, it can relieve us of so much um, agonizing. Of course, we still make need to make decisions and figure things out, uh, but since I took the Bodhisattva vows in 1983, received the name Mushim, which is a Dharma name, I actually don't have to worry about much of anything because... I only check to see whether my actions are in alignment with my bodhisattva vows. So it doesn't need to be a bodhisattva vow. Uh, It could be a different kind of vow, and that's fine. My only suggestion would be, after you formulate it and take as long as you want, is that it needs to be short enough to remember without your taking out your laptop or your journal. Otherwise, in a pinch, it's going to be pretty difficult if it's three pages long. And I just completed uh, the two-day Kingian nonviolence training that we now have in Oakland and that's available nationwide. Really recommend it for those of you who haven't done it. So this is uh, nonviolence training uh, coming from the teachings of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., as the curriculum was formulated by Dr. Bernard Lafayette. And it's extremely consonant with our Buddhist and Dharma practice, that commitment to nonviolence, to cherishing all beings and to uh, to to moving forward as a total beloved community. So in Kingian nonviolence, part of the training is that they say that uh every social change movement needs a motto, and that motto should be at most three or four words so that people can remember it and it can inspire them without having to think, wait a minute, what was the motto of that liberation movement? It was something, something. No, it should pop into our minds. We should wake up with it on the on our tongues. It should be extremely easy to, to remember. So vow, same thing. For the, the condensed version of bodhisattva vow is save all beings. And uh, this points to um, the impossibility also. So on one hand, we have this, this emphasis on the expansion, on hugeness, on the big picture in the biggest sense of the word. Um, there was a motto some years ago, think globally, act locally in this view of spiritual development and um, what can be helpful for all of us, not only human beings, but all the animals, the plants, and the planet, is to think universally and act locally. So think universally and act locally. And this requires great courage on one hand, So it's said that one of the practices we do, which is dana, or generous giving, so we might think of it in terms of giving money, our time and effort, our skills, volunteering. We might think it in terms of giving food, uh, water, medical assistance, clothing, helping with housing. All of those are beautiful forms of the practice of dana. It's also said that one of the greatest forms of dana, which we can offer to ourselves and to others, is the offering of non-fear. We can give the gift of non-fear. So this means that even in a little way, that we can help to um, others to believe in themselves. We can inspire. We can encourage we can help to build communities of self-reliance and of resilience. Particularly as people of color, we know that our communities are disproportionately affected in terms of health, in, often in terms of income, because of the uh, causes and conditions in the United States and throughout our history. So giving each other the gift of well-being, of non-fear, of um, relief of anxiety and increased well-being is one of the greatest things that we can give to ourselves and others. So we have this courage, this non-fear on one hand, and because the vow is so great in this great vow practice, which is the topic of my talk, we also need to have humility on the other hand. Sometimes people who get all perfectionistic you know, it just makes them more anxious because they think, save all beings. Okay, I'm here on one hand, and I'm saving this being. But then on the other hand, this bird with a broken wing is dying. And meanwhile, something else is happening on the other side of the world. It can actually make people quite depressed and anxious. And that's not the, the intent of it at all. So as part of our spiritual process, we also have to say, I've taken this great vow And it's impossible. It's totally freaking impossible. It's so gigantic that I can't can't do it, and that's going to be okay. That's going to be okay. That is the act of joyful spiritual surrender that we can achieve through this practice. Uh, So, I've gotten pretty used to this. And... um, it's, it's something that um, that seems to be contradictory, and yet it isn't. And through the spiritual life, we understand why it seems paradoxical, and, and it isn't. Because in that act of surrender, of saying, well, I'm just one person, I can't save everyone. I can't even save myself on most days. Um, There's so much suffering in the world. So with our compassionate hearts, we feel that suffering. We see it. We know that there's so much more. We know that there is so much that that needs to be improved. And when we offer ourselves up and say, I'll just do what I can, or as uh, one of my uh, consultant friends says, do all that you can with all that you have, in the place that you are, in the time that you have. And that's all that each of us can do, and that's a lot, because when we're uh, clear on our purpose, when we direct our energies efficiently, and we're, when we're not so um, burdened down by our own concerns, then we're able to contribute, we're able to empower and we're able to heal in ways that, that we may not have understood until that human potential opens up. So as we do our great vow practice, we open up to vastness, to what in Buddhism is called groundlessness, which is very scary to a lot of people. Uh, because we like to have that solid ground to say, I know who I am, I know what I'm about. I know what my social security number is. I know what my job is. I know who my family members are. Hey, I know my, who my friends and my enemies are. I know. Our Dharma practice asks us to take this radical uh, movement, this shift, to say, to into what's called don't know mind. So this doesn't mean we're willfully stupid or ignorant. Of course, we like to educate ourselves. Of course, we read the news. Of course, we gain knowledge that will help us and help others. Don't know mind is opening up to the constant awareness that we cannot and do not know everything and that our perceptual range is so limited by the mere fact of this form, this vehicle that we're in, that there is so much that we don't see, we don't hear, we don't know, we've never even dreamed of, and that this is a good thing. This is a marvelous thing. This is a wonderful thing. Then we can live in a new way. We know our place more in the world in terms of that constant openness to um, Uh, understanding that there are multiple points of view, there are multiple realities, there are worlds beyond worlds, and there are colors that other uh, creatures might be able to see, sounds we know that other creatures are able to hear that we don't hear, and um, dreams that other people are dreaming that may not be our dreams as well. So... We open up to groundlessness, to vastness, to reality, beyond words and beyond concepts. So we do need words, we do need concepts, and we understand that there, there is a greater reality which encompasses all of this and does not reside in any specific word or any specific concept. So we're talking about something really big here, And at the same time, in order to fulfill this great vow to save all beings, it means that we also need to be very precise, very specific, and local, as in here and now. Little things, little acts, and I'm putting little in quotes because... um, what we think of as little, because it's so specific, may have very beneficial consequences that touch many beings, that, go, that goes into the far future in that kind of ripple effect that we don't understand. That's part of our faith. There is a faith mind in the Dharma, and this is part of it. The United States is a very individualistic society and this ties into the consumer mentality and market economy. As most of us know, the United States uses up most of the planet's resources. Uh, We're not that big in terms of the population, percentage of population of the planet and what we consume is a huge part of our natural resources. In the Occupy Wall Street uh, movement that started last fall, there is, as many of the images that have come from it, uh, there's one of a uh, person holding up, person of color actually, holding up a hand-lettered sign that says, Earth has enough for every man's need but not enough for every man's greed. So, making it more general, Earth has enough for every person's need, but not enough for every person's greed. And we don't extend that to all beings. We don't say, Earth has enough for every being's need, but not enough for every being's greed, because we are the species that... um, unfortunately, along with all of our wonderful qualities, also has um, what in Buddhism is called one of the three uh, poisons, and that is of craving and desiring more than we actually need. So during uh, the Vyacitos retreat, we have the wonderful opportunity to get in touch with how a community can live on the land in harmony with the resources that we have. And Carl was talking about, let's please conserve our electricity, the solar-generated electricity. Let's please conserve the hot water that we use when we shower or wash dishes because uh, that's heated up by propane. And propane is, I guess, Viacito's single biggest cost and is is a resource that we want to conserve. However, another way to look at it, I think, is not in terms of conserving as in, um, in the sense of sort of reducing. It's conserving in the sense of sustain- sustainability and working in harmony with the resources we have at hand. So our practice is mindfulness. And what are we mindful or aware of? The insight arises in a retreat such as this one, in everyday life, of our inescapable interconnection. What in the Dharma is called paticha samupada, and the ways in which we all depend on one another, not just as human beings but all of the life on the planet in order for all of us to live. Interconnection, interdependence, interbeing may sound abstract and philosophical, but real Dharma is always about keeping it real. When I traveled to Korea uh, to do monastic a practice in 1987. I was there for eight months. I had already been training in a Korean lineage temple or temples in North America, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is my home temple, and in our mother temple, the Zen Buddhist temple of Toronto in Canada. So I was familiar with some of the practices, some of the culture. I didn't speak Korean, which was uh, a problem. Uh, but at least I felt familiar with some of the practices. Uh, however, uh, there was something I was introduced to, which was the formal way of, we ate our meals in a very simplified formal way. And I was introduced to the formal way of eating meals in the meditation hall uh, when I went to Korea in 1987. So I landed and I was part of a group of international students from many students from many different nations who were going to do the traditional three-month snows retreat at a temple called um, Sudoksa. But we all, uh, first, we gathered together in Seoul at a temple called Hwagesa, and there we took our meals in the formal manner with the Korean uh, monks. And so in that system, which is similar to the Japanese system, you have a set of nested bowls. You have three bowls that are tied with a cloth. And then you have your utensils, a spoon and some chopsticks on top. And that's your little meal kit. Uh, No one else uses it. That's your responsibility. It's your responsibility to keep it clean, to keep it in order. and, uh, And so you each person in the meditation hall has their bowl, and then servers come in from the kitchen with big pots of, uh, typically each meal is rice, soup, and then the national dish of Korea is kimchi, or pickled vegetables, and so then they bring a little, some little trays that they set between you that has, I don't know, maybe three, four small dishes of different kinds of pickled vegetables. If you're lucky, you might score a few blocks of tofu. Uh, But usually not. Usually not. It's usually it's Korean miso soup, rice, and pickled vegetables. So very spare from our point of view, as people in the United States. Um, And it helps to obviously to conserve or help to sustain the resources of the monastic communities uh, in Korea as a traditional diet. So what we discovered um, when we took our first formal meal together was that you would open the set of bowls, the servers would come around and serve you some rice, some soup, then you'd have your little side dishes, so you'd eat your meal in silence. Uh, and then typically what you would do is if you have little food remaining on your bowls you would use your chopsticks and pick up a little piece of radish, and you'd use that to sort of scrub the inside of your bowls. They'd bring around some barley tea and pour a little bit in one bowl, and you'd scrub that with your little piece of radish, and you'd pour it into your other bowls, and you'd scrub each of them in turn until you were left with your little bit of barley tea that had whatever grains of rice or remnants or whatever from your meal and you would drink that. Hopefully everything would be uh, very clean at that point. And then they would bring around a kettle full of hot water and would serve everyone um, a little bit of hot water and you would use that to then to do a second cleaning of your bowls. They would then bring around a basin for, uh, for that water, which was the waste water from the meal in the meditation hall and bring it to each person you put the wastewater into the basin it would get to the end and then you would take your cloth dry out your bowls put them together um, tie it up put your utensils in be ready to go for the next meal so we were eating and we were all trying to be very good because you know That eating in that style always makes me extremely nervous. Like, what, you know, what if you drop something on the floor? Of course that does happen from time to time. But the idea is ultimate mindfulness of every action. And it does, it does create a lot of mindfulness. Well, there was an additional step I had didn't know about. And that was at the end when, after a couple of days of this, the abbot made an announcement and we did have a translator and he said, I inspect the wastewater. That comes around in the bowl at the end of its circuit. And he said, traditionally, and he said, there's a lot of food in there. He said, traditionally, in the Korean uh, meditation hall, if there's too much stuff in, it means you're not eating all the food in your bowls. And in that case, traditionally, the wastewater would be divided equally, and everyone in the community would have to drink it. we got a lot better (laughs) immediately. So often people think, oh, karma, what is that? It's so, you know, you have all of these tricky questions. It's also very immediate, and that's a demonstration of interconnection of karma and how the practice of mindfulness means that as a community, we are... um, we are inextricably bound to one another. We rely on each other. We depend on each other for our ability to live in happiness, in health, and to live the spiritual life that each of us wants to live. So when we take the great vow it's not to practice only for ourselves. It's so that we can protect, encourage, and sustain the life of every person and every being in our community. And our community is the planet itself, ultimately the universe itself. So I'll stop there. With great thanks for your patient listening. And open it up to any insights or questions that you may have about the talk this morning. So the question is, when I was went to Korea, was I already ordained as a monastic or on the way? Yes. <laughs> That's a classic Zen answer, sorry. It's really <laughs> obnoxious. Uh, however, the answer is yes. Uh, I, I originally started my Zen practice in the Zen Buddhist Temple of Ann Arbor, Michigan, in 1982, I received my name and the Bodhisattva vows in 1983. So that wasn't monastic ordination. Um, anyone can receive, and you're all encouraged to receive the precepts and the vows. Uh, it's very encouraging. And, uh, however, at that point in 1983, I did make the radical move for a a person in the United States to enter that temple full time under a vow of poverty and to become a full time temple staff person. I was immediately to my chagrin, because I have administrative skills, put into the office. We were just starting out and made the office manager and I had to learn double entry bookkeeping by hand Mm -hmm. and generate financial reports. So I became known as the very mean person in the office who was always saying, If you're gonna take petty cash, you've got to bring me a receipt.
1: <laughs>
0: Everyone dreaded and feared me. Uh, uh so uh in that order we were uh the teacher said, You're not really lay people because we were living under a vow of poverty, we had no personal money, we had no privacy, um did a lot of sitting meditation practice, a lot of work meditation practice. Basically, we took care of the community. He said, you're not really lay people, Uh, and he said, "Uh, but neither are you really monastics in the full sense of, of the word. And he liked it to be that way because he was very interested in the evolution of North American Buddhism, including how we can live together in mindful communities. So our status was ambiguous, and he called us lay monastics. From the normal secular lay person's point of view, I would say we were more monastic. You know, we we really did. We had no, we had zero personal money. Um, we ate our meals together. Uh, You know, people didn't have any personal stashes of food unless they were cheating and had stashed something in the back of their sock drawer. And you didn't even have your own sock drawer, so how could you do that? Uh, And uh, the teacher said, you're not required to be celibate. However, try having a sex life when you don't even have your own room. You're getting up at 4 or 5 in the morning and going to bed at night, and you're working seven days a week. Good luck. That regulated most of that. Uh, so we did live what would be considered an ascetic lifestyle. And then when I went to Korea, I popped into that system, and I did receive the first-level nuns uh, ordination in, I don't know, March or May? Maybe, I don't know, maybe earlier than that, February of 1988, um, which I hope to write about sometime because... Due to my karma, it turned out to be this really old school ordination that was famous for being the traditional style, instead of the tradition, the kind of the lighter version that other temples were espousing. The temple I was at did it the old school way, which was really, really hard. <laughs> and I'll, i I may talk about it or write about it sometime. Does that answer your question? Anyone else? Yes.
3: Um, when you bring up this, the, the issue of you know, greed and how um, the United States uses up all these resources, um, I find myself often struggling with um, some people that I know who tend to fall into these buckets of people who um, are kind of unaware or don't think about it or maybe they don't want to think about it. And I find it really difficult to talk to them about, you know, the way that maybe, um, you know, they drive these big gas guzzlers and they buy bottles of water for their kids and, you know, things that I see them do on a daily basis that I find to be really wasteful. And, you know, I used to be that person. I never drove a gas guzzler, but I used to be that person who would buy bottled water and. You know, run the water while I was brushing my teeth. You know, just not really made aware of ways that I could conserve things until you know I sort of met a group of people who were like, "Oh, this is how you, you know, don't waste water and things like that." And um, and every time I've tried to talk to them about it, I've sort of gotten this like, "Oh, you think you're holier than now And that's not you know, it's not how I want to approach it, and that's not how my that's not my intention ever but it's just really hard to understand the ways in which that can be done without being condescending or being um, telling them how to do things in a better way. I don't know, do you have any thoughts or insight on
0: yeah I do thank you that's that's really really a good a good point and so the question had to do with uh, as we're trying to live mindfully to conserve and sustain our, our resources, uh, what happens when we look at other people who are through unconsciousness or willfulness, uh, using up a lot more than their fair share of resources, uh, and if we point that out to them, they may come, it might well come across as holier than thou and meet with a very defensive reaction. Does that capture it? Okay, so that that's really common. And um, a couple couple of things about that. One is that in our practice, we become really try to become really mindful of when judging mind arises, when we're judging other people. Like, oh, that person is not being as good about they're using up plastic bags and I take my recycled plastic reusable tote, with me every time I go shopping. Uh, uh, so that that judging mind arises. Oh, I, I always bicycle, whereas this person is driving a, a gas guzzler. Um, so the mind goes outward to judge other people and to compare them to ourselves. And wonder of wonders, usually the comparison results in like, hey, I'm doing pretty well, whereas they're not. Um, so we need to look at that and to understand uh, this is just basic psychology. No one likes to feel judged critically. I mean, that's not, e- that's not even Dharma. If we want to try to move in the direction of sustainability, uh, we need to do it in a way that's inviting, that's welcoming, that's encouraging, and that recognizes that um, each person in their own way is doing their best. So we may judge them to be ignorant. However, unless, um, uh, I mean, I can't say that I I do drive a car. I don't drive a lot, but I do drive a car. Um, I suppose I could get a bike. Um, I could walk more. So I'll include that in, in my resolutions. But I really try to notice when that judging mine arises. And then To see our goal, if our goal is more sustainability, more respect for the environment, living in proportion, then to ask myself, what is the skillful means? So that's a Buddhist term, upaya, or skillful means. So that means means that are appropriate for the person that we're um, interacting with to, um, to kind of gently open the way so that they can have their own insight and say, I'd like to help, I'd like to help, I'd like to conserve, I'd like to live in a different way, I'd like to take my own bags with me when I go shopping. Uh, And then it will come from then, it will be their own insight, and they'll feel very happy about it, they'll feel very proud of it, Uh, and even more importantly, it will be something that they'll be able to put in action into their own lives, because they won't feel it's coming from someone else telling it to them out of a critical judgment. Does that make sense?
2: Can I make a comment? Of course. Okay. Uh, another way to do it is that one of the most powerful things that you'll find if you these types of practices and meditation and that is through observing. The best way to really learn it's to observe your teachers or whoever you're around. And then you slowly let them be introduced in these things that you, you're concerned about, say, for, <coughs> for example, without even having to say a word. Um, one of my teachers, uh, his name was uh, uh Win V. He lived in France. He's one of these Persons where everything had to be in exact order, you know. And he will be talking, and we, he would give us some information. Say at lunch, say for example, or at breakfast in the morning. And he'd be talking, and then all of a sudden he noticed that the salt shaker or something is not in the proper place, and he'd be talking to us and. And I learned from him to watch every move he would make out of the corner of my eye. And then he continued talking and he moved something else. And everything in the temple was set up in such a way that you had to be so careful, because these things were expensive, not to break them or something like that. But you can also introduce. Things to your friends or people you're around or at your workplace in just a very subtle way. And then sometimes they catch on. And then, if they ask the question, then you can give the answer to that particular situation, you know, uh, whether it's bottled water. If everybody's buying bottled water, then what happened to the water in the faucet and all these, you know, things that. People are concerned about these days, but you can just slowly introduce them in a very subtle way, sort of like Venerable Wendy would do in his actions with us. It works.
0: Thank you, Bonke. Yes, mm-hmm. so so modeling, mm-hmm. always one of the most powerful forms of teaching, mm-hmm. yeah. and often very slow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This will be our last question.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I find myself judging people uh, rather frequently, and I find it to be extremely unpleasant. Mm-hmm. Um, part of it is one of the things I do is directing, so I have to judge people in order to make something better. So it's very difficult to turn it off when it's not necessary. Um, but the other, I've noticed that it's unpleasant, But I've also noticed that um, in some circumstances, like with people who are wasteful, or uh, often with with white people, I will find myself wanting them to be punished, Mm -hmm. which is also extremely unpleasant. Um, So I I have difficulty uh, knowing what to do because I. I feel like judging is unpleasant, and I also feel like the desire for someone to be punished is unpleasant. Um, But then when I don't let myself have those feelings, then I just feel resentful. So it's all extremely unpleasant feelings, so um, I'm looking for guidance on how to uh, change those habits.
0: Thank you. So some of you are familiar with the Buddhist term vedana, which is often translated as feeling tone. And it said that all of our um, perceptions, the phenomena, that have um, one of three feeling tones, which is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So I hear you saying that when that judging mind, that critical... And we're not talking about discernment, wise discernment here. We do need to judge between, oh, this is edible and that's not edible. Like Carl was saying, don't go out and eat the plants. So we're judging. It's not good to eat the plants when we're down by the creek. Uh, But judging in a critical critical judgment, you know, oh, that that person's so mean. Oh, if that person weren't so wasteful, probably the whole planet would be saved. That mind that arises, we we can all identify with that. It's very unpleasant. That the experience of the judging mind is very unpleasant, and then also what can rise up in conjunction with that is the desire for that person to be punished for uh, their wasteful or wrong behaviors. And that also feels, I hear you saying, extremely unpleasant. However, if you repress all of that, repression is never a good idea, then it turns into resentment. And there we have a third form. That's a lot of unpleasantness pretty un- disgustingly unpleasant if we just <laughs> contemplate it for, for a moment. So um, so let's let that unpleasantness just glom together in one giant pile of unpleasantness and motivate us to say, is there a better way? And that's what I hear, hear you asking. Uh, always in the practice that we do, uh, exactly as you're saying, if something arises, we don't try to stuff it down or there's going to be a reaction which is is not helpful or beneficial uh, usually and that's that's that resentment so it's in that case it's not transforming into something which is uh more helpful more beneficial to our progress and i say helpful and beneficial because it's not transforming the unpleasant into the pleasant right the pleasant's just the flip side of the unpleasant so we're not tra- trying to transform, ooh, this feels bad into, ah, that feels really good. That's not what we're looking at. We're trying to transform it in that affliction into wisdom and into clarity and into that which will be of benefit. So we can start from there, letting that unpleasantness, that pain be our motivation. And then for each of us, it might be a slightly different process and path. So I want to leave that open for you and to say let the awareness of how unpleasant and afflictive those judgments and that desire for other people to be punished, let that pain motivate you to seek the way of clarity, of insight and of spiritual understanding based on the value, and this again is part of our faith, that each and every being has the nature of awakening. Each and every being has Buddha nature, whether it's manifested or not, and therefore we respect and we value not only every person, but every being that we encounter. I want to thank all of you, and we'll now have um, what's next on the schedule, a break. I'm sure you want to stretch your legs, a break uh, for 15 minutes, then I believe walking meditation.
1: Mm -hmm. It's a 45-minute walk. Yeah, Um, so
0: we have a nice 45-minute walking meditation period, mm -hmm. and then I believe sitting until lunch. Yes. Thank you.